It's the 9th of August, 2019. This is the Room Now podcast. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, we're going to talk about a number of interesting articles. You know, if you give a vaccine, you expect good things to happen. Did you know that you may cause a gout flare? How do you keep infection rates low? Well, vaccinate. And also, why not use a biologic? What? And lastly, if you're going to start a biologic, which is the best one to start? A TNF inhibitor or a non-TNF inhibitor? We have the answers. Let's start with that report about gout in vaccination. It's an internet-based study that comes from Hyun Choi, who enrolled patients via the internet, collected data via the internet, via surveys about their gout, confirmed their diagnoses, and then looked at the association between receiving a vaccination or not. The issue here was whether or not uh, these adjuvant vaccines could cause activation of the immune system and maybe the inflammasome, and maybe that would make more uh, gout attacks possible. So when they surveyed these patients, these 517 patients, they showed that those who received a vaccination had a twofold higher risk of having a gout flare, a significantly higher odds ratio of 1.99. So I don't know what to do with this data. I think I probably have to tell my patients that if we do the vaccine, your gout could get a little bit worse but I still think people, people need to be vaccinated. I came across a very interesting patient this week, someone I've been following who's had myalgias and fatigue and pain and fatigue and myalgias and pain. And of course he had a sleep disorder and I diagnosed fibromyalgia. Uh, he actually went to the uh, fabulous Johns Hopkins myositis clinic and um, had a consultation there. And they noted as I did, he did have occasional elevations of CPK and aldolase. And the question was, what was this about? He had had a negative biopsy previously, an EMG that was non-revealing. They suggested a repeat biopsy. And so we did a repeat biopsy of the deltoid, and the biopsy came back as, guess what? Not fibromyalgia, macrophagic myofasciitis. This is like the third patient I've had of this in my career. It's a very rare myopathy. It can present as myalgias, weakness, fatigue, even fever, and they can have muscle tenderness. They can have muscle enzyme elevations. It's not going to be 40,000, but it might be 1,000 or so, which this gentleman did at one point. The question is, what do you do about it? Well, first you have to make the diagnosis. The diagnosis is um, based on a muscle biopsy showing PAS positive and morin stain positive um, containing macrophages that are meant to be representative of aluminum deposits. So the idea is that this is maybe an aluminum-induced myopathy. Obviously, you tend to get it where they've got the, ba- the, the, the vaccine, like in the deltoid, as this gentleman did. And, the, and how do you treat them? No one seems to know. If they're bad enough, you might give them a course of steroids. Turns out that many of them do have um, basically what is called a soft myopathy and tend to have uh, a lot of fibromyalgia symptoms. So treat what you're certain about. Don't get too wrapped up in the diagnosis, which is strange. A strange name, myofagic myofasciitis, sounds like it's very inflammatory. There's very, very little inflammation associated here, and that's what we found in this gentleman's biopsy. I thought you'd want to know about this rare presentation. Another unusual uh, investigation came about this week, um, looking at IL-16 in patients with systemic sclerosis. IL-16 is basically a chemotractant. Um, it can be found um, in lymphocytes and, I guess, blood vessels. And in this particular study, they studied scleroderma patients and found that scleroderma patients had a lot of IL-16 positive 
um, lymphocyte staining, especially in a perivascular distribution, in, and, and more so in people who had diffuse systemic sclerosis than those who had limited uh, disease. So 44% versus 29%, and that was significant. Moreover, serum IL-16 levels tend to be higher in systemic sclerosis patients compared to normal controls. And IL-16 levels tended to correlate with having diffuse cutaneous disease, the modified rodent skin score, and uh, pigmentation changes in erythema. So is it going to be involved? Is this ca uh, causal or casual? Is this epiphenomenal? I don't think it's really known, but I think it's interesting, uh, and I think any new information about scleroderma should be welcome. An interesting study of 83 patients uh, with gout, they looked at them prospectively to see what would happen if they're on urate-lowering therapy, and they looked at uh, three different urate-lowering drugs, including the ones that you're familiar with. Um, and 77 of the 83 patients were on urate-lowering therapy, six were not. And specifically, they looked at not just what happened to them clinically and what happened to them uh, as far as their serum urate levels, but also they all had DEX scans, uh, dual energy CT scans, to quantify the amount of uric acid deposition. So what they, they, they had a way of quantifying the um, MSU deposits, and they showed that in the patients who were not on urate-lowering therapy, there was basically no change in their serum uric acid levels and no change in their size and volume of MSU deposits. However, the urate-lowering therapy group had a significant reduction not only in their serum urate from 7.2 down to 5.8, but they also had a significant P equals 0007, 0 .007, um, reduction in the volume of monosodium urate crystals, suggesting that when you do lower uric acid, you are lowering total body deposition. Although it's on a small scale and it's very gradual, it is important. I found this to be an interesting study looking at ANCA-associated vasculitis and its responsiveness to IVIG. I don't use much in the way of IV immunoglobulin to treat lupus, myositis, or certainly vasculitis. But a meta-analysis of initially 22 studies whittled down to nine showed that in people who, people who were treated with IVIG had significant and rapid reductions in their Birmingham vasculitis score, the BVAS, um, significant reductions in ANCA titers and in CRP levels, and it happened as quick as two weeks. Um, some took as long as 24 weeks. Again, not generally in my arsenal of drugs I'll use in ANCA-associated vasculitis, but it may be worth consideration where other therapies may not be possible. And a claims analysis looked at the uh, risk of cardiovascular events in patients on tocilizumab. This has been done before. You know, there was the Intrac study that compared, uh, I think it was a three-year study comparing cardiovascular events in patients on either etanercept, which would be the normal control, and tocilizumab, which would be the test drug, because you know, the tocilizumab, other IL-6 inhibitors, and JAK inhibitors all have the potential to raise all your lipids. It's not just LDL, it's also triglycerides, VLDL, and HDL. And the question is whether there's a, 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 a coexistent uh, cardiovascular risk to such a side effect seen in 20% of patients. Well, the Intrac study did not show a risk, and there was basically the same rate between those on Embrel and those on um, Ectemra. Well, in this study, uh, that, was, that was a claim study, basically, I think it was actually 88,000, study between 2006 and 2015, and showed that the cardiovascular event rate was about 12 per 1,000 patient years with tocilizumab and 15 with the TNF inhibitors. Um, and they also looked at tocilizumab 
showing no difference between the three of them. So there really is no increased risk when you're using uh, a drug that may cause hyperlipidemia, such as tocilizumab. Another claim study looked at the uh, risk of having a serious infection if you're either on triple DMARN therapy, almost 1,400 patients, compared to those starting TNF inhibitor plus methotrexate. And you would think, well, the data is pretty clear. TNF inhibitors tend to have a higher rate of um, serious infection events compared to background therapy with DMARDs. Well, in the real-world studies, and this is a real-world study, um, there was no significant difference in the rate of SIEs. And they were both low in this real-world population, very large population, two and a half um, events per 100 patient years uh, versus two on triple DMARD therapy. That was not significant between the two. And the question is why? The hazard ratio is 1.23, but it crossed over one. The hazard, the 95% confidence intervals were 0.87 to 1.74. The question is, is this higher or not higher? Again, statistically not so. Clinically meaningful, no. It turns out that as time has gone on, I think that our risk of getting serious infections has gone down as patients have been less sick, less inflamed. Um, and you're going to get basically the same rates when you use triple DMAR therapy with methotrexate, sulfazalazine, hydroxychloroquine, as you will if you're using a TNF inhibitor plus methotrexate. Again, the risk of a biologic causing infection only becomes substantial when the patient's really sick, elderly, on high-dose steroids, lots of comorbidities, prior serious infectious events. That's when a TNF inhibitor can add to the risk. Otherwise, there is not a significant bump in infectious risk for serious infections when using a TNF inhibitor or really any of the biologics. That's the data, and that's my interpretation of the data. An interesting report showed that oral candidiasis might be a marker for those who might be at higher risk of infection. The point being that maybe if you can't handle fungal infections, you have a defect in T-cell-mediated immunity that you might be at greater risk. Well, they actually looked at ANCA-associated vasculitis patients, 71 specifically, and looked at their risk of getting a serious infectious event. Now, these people were all on background immunosuppressive therapy. Um, they all had active disease. And when they showed, looked at the predictors of severe infection, it was number one, low albumin, very inflamed, very sick. Number two, pulse methylprednisolone, steroids are always a bad player, with a hazard ratio greater than five, and a history of oral candidiasis. And that was not related to steroid use um, in what I saw from the, the, the report. The adjusted hazard ratio also 5.3. So that may be a, a, an interesting clinical finding that may tell you this patient's at a higher risk should you proceed in managing that patient. You might want to limit steroid use. You might want to get more uh, rapid control of their infection. Three more reports, periodontal disease and P. gingivalis. This is a 48-patient study of individuals at risk for RA. They did not have RA. They did not have arthritis or synovitis. They just had a CCP positivity and some musculoskeletal complaints on ultrasound. They had no joint inflammation. But it turns out when you looked at this cohort and you compared them to early RA patients or controls, 73% of the CCP-positive individuals had clinical period periodontal disease, periodontitis. That this was higher than that seen healthy individuals, 38%, or early RA, 54%, suggesting that uh, at-risk individuals, if they have periodontal disease, may be at higher risk 
to go on to RA, and it's not surprising that you'll see, you're seeing this. We know periodontal disease is a risk factor for RA. If you're a first-degree relative and you're CCB positive, the data seems pretty clear. The risk of developing RA could be as high as 35%, could be as low as 10%, but I'm thinking it's closer to 20 to 35%. You want to get um, dental screening on those individuals to make sure they're, they're not going to be at risk for developing RA, or you can do what you can to minimize that risk. Uh, an interesting study comes from Sweden and the Swedish registry of RA that they have there. This is a fairly large registry that looked at what is the most effective and safest regimen to use. This is a study conducted between 2010 and 2016 and looked at individuals who are starting their first biologic DMARD. Uh, again, patients are on background, uh, regular DMARDs, conventional DMARDs, and patients either started either a TNF inhibitor, rituximab, abatacept, or tocilizumab. They had over 9,000 new biologic starts. They also looked at people switched from their initial TNF inhibitor to um, another biologic, and they had almost 4,000 of those people. And you know what they showed? At one year, in new biologic initiators, the TNF inhibitors were not the best performing. Uh, when looking at a ULAR good response, 24.9% with a TNF inhibitor, 286 with rituximab, 31.9 with abatacept and 50.9% with tocilizumab, ULAR good responses at one year. When you looked at the people switching uh, from a TNF inhibitor to another drug, switching to another TNF inhibitor, about 11%. Switching to abatacept wasn't much more. It was like 13%. Switching to either uh, uh, tocilizumab or rituximab gave you almost 30% responses, suggesting that it's the non-TNF biologics um, that may be as good, if not better, than TNF inhibitors. And again, that sort of smashes the convention that we are currently um, living under and certainly forced to practice under, especially with regard to managed care. The last report is about the new ULAR ACR classification criteria for systemic lupus erythematosus. You should look at this report in, uh, in room now. I'll read you my first paragraph, which I thought was brilliant because I wrote it. Again, these new criteria developed jointly between ACR and ULAR, prompted by the fact that old criteria are either too sensitive or too specific, and they wanted something that was just right, a la Goldilocks. The net result was these new criteria, which one, require the presence of a positive ANA, and two, a long list of weighted criteria that you must use to calculate a score of 10 to be included in a study or to be said to have um, lupus. The idea here is that maybe you could treat um, quiescent lupus, maybe you could study quiescent lupus or study early lupus with these criteria. And again, a long process, many thousands of patients, over 25 centers worldwide, the point was that the old original ang tan criteria of 82 modified by Hochberg in 97 had um, a, a sensitivity of eight, only 85%, but a specificity of 95%. Uh, and that was, again, the 4 out of 11 criteria. The, new, the slick criteria from 2012, they gave me a headache. I never used them, but they had much better sensitivity at 97%, uh, but a lower specificity at 90%. Well, the new criteria are the best of both worlds, 98% sensitivity uh, and 96% specificity in the derivation co cohort when it was validated in another cohort over 1,000 patients, 96 sensitivity, 93 specificity. The problem is that it's a long list. I, you, this, these are going to be great for clinical trials. They're going to be confusing as heck for practice, and I don't know how I'd use it in practice, but again, they, if you look at the, <clears throat> the algorithm 
one, you must have an ANA. And then you get points. You get two points for fever, two points for delirium. You get two points for a lupus anticoagulant. You get high points for uh, class three or four lupus nephritis on biopsy. Uh, you get only four points, and it's 10 points. Uh, you have the diagnosis. It, you get four points for proteinuria. You get four points for SCLE. You get six points for acute LE. Like all in all, it looks like there's about 15 criteria here with point scores of two to mainly two to four or six points with only a 10-point um, score for a biopsy proven class three and four. Again, great tool for clinical research. Um, remains to be seen how it will be used in practice or if it will advance practice at all. That's it for this week on Room Now and our weekly podcast. Uh, for those of you who went to Room Now Live, I think we sent you an invitation to do the post-test. I need your help. Please go and do it. We need some data for outcomes. Tune in next week for more good news on rheumatology from Room Now. Bye.